Hello and welcome back to Utter Shambles with now new name. It used to be Robin Ince's Utter Shambles. It is now Robin and Josie's Utter Shambles to hopefully attract a, a younger demographic. Uh, Josie, are you happy to have your name in the title now? I'm more than happy. Well, we're going to be talking about a lot. Hopefully we might get time this week to talk about Hypatia, the librarian of Alexandria. Uh, I think with our special guest, it is exactly the kind of area we should be looking into uh, because we're joined by Alan Moore. Um, Alan, before we came in here, we were just talking uh, a little bit about David Icke, because I've just read a book by uh, David Icke uh, about positivity and certain elements of existentialism. And you have had some, you've got a certain take on him and uh, lizards and the royal family. Apparently the Queen Mother, um, God bless her, she apparently used to, when she shapeshifted, apparently she would eat little boys with a specially made sort of golden thing that she would stick up them and then the Queen Mother would eat them like a toffee apple, apparently, according to uh, to David Oik. Um, but, uh, How did he find that out? Well, I believe he'd met one person who had been somehow distantly connected to the royal family in a sort of a servant role or something like that. And she was probably a schizophrenic, but had passed on these anecdotes of, of life in the palace with people regularly shapeshifting into reptiles, eating boys, and uh, I mean, it might be true for all I know. You know, I'm no royalist, Robin. Oh, no, but I think there's lots of other reasons to dislike the royal family without actually Rather getting caught up yeah, with a golden right. boy toffee right. apple fork <laughs> being placed up them for the delicious snackery. It's just not what you expect. I used to work in... But the things that went on there, you wouldn't believe. What? Well, sometimes the Queen, she'd get up in the middle of the night and make her own hot chocolate. <laughs> really? And other times, the Queen Mother would kill a boy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you'd just see, you'd walk in, she'd be have such a happy face. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I need another one now. It's always the trouble with the small boy. Oh, we never talk about that. That'll get. Is that, that's probably already litigious. That's no, not, is it? Because we're placing it in the worlds of David Icke. And I believe that this was all quoted in one of his books, or perhaps I've just made it up on the spur of the moment. You know, it could happen. That's how religions begin. That's, that's how, how scurrilous gossip. Begin. I think the main thing, Josie, I advise you is don't believe everything you hear from a crazy lady in the woods. Oh. You know, sometimes you base some of your. I your... am gonna dig up that box of pennies she told me <laughs> to plant underneath the toilet. I mean, with 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 your work, do you because you don't go to conventions really, do you? For instance, no, not anymore. No. Now, was part of that because you would sit down and, and a bit like when you've got a great scientist, that there will often be someone in the audience who go, "Yes, I have a question," and then it's not a question. They go, "You see, I have actually come up with a theory, and this is my theory," and then they expound this bizarre. You know, I, I'm just someone. I, I do just work in a, in a shoe shop, killing a lot of people through radiation, but also I've come up with an idea about the whole universe. Do you also get the same thing where people would go? Now you see, Alan, I've seen something in your book that I think maybe even you haven't seen. Well, I did. Apparently, I've got some uh, some things on the Dodgem Logic. I mean, I don't actually have email uh, or a, an internet connection, but through the magazine, I've been getting these uh, emails passed on. A lot of them, they just screen, but there have been ones from people offer it. They've got a great idea for a sequel to watch men that they think I might be interested in perhaps buying off of them or something like that. So, But no, that, that wasn't really it with the conventions. I, uh, the people there were generally 
generally well behaved, you know, and uh, it was just, that was just me, Robin. I just thought that I was too good to <laughs> mix with ordinary people. Well, the reason I got you here, actually, is I've got a brilliant idea for a sequel to Watchmen, <laughs> and it's called Watchmen with Mother, and it's about oh. how various 1960s children TV characters, uh, the way that they're manipulated by the BBC, who by this kind of malevolent auntie figure, and the way that they then come back into Pogel's Wood. That would be genius, because if I were to do that, people there'd be all these things in the newspapers just saying, flubber-dubber-dub, children's television grows up. And people had realised that before I did my kind of postmodern take on Bill and Ben or the wooden tops, that they'd been thought of mainly as a children's thing. But that I would bring out all these kind of layers of meaning and symbolism, the flower pots, the weed, and it would lift the veil from people's eyes. They'd realised that there was something there all along. I um, I have a sequel for uh, Watchmen where all of the characters form a band in Australia in the 80s and it's called Watchmen Tell Us Anything. <laughs> Thank you, I'm here all week. I'm sorry, I'm such a child. I was also going to bring up the cause myths, because you have got quite a few kind of myths that have grown up around you. Um, yeah. And my favourite one is the one that you hate children. Oh, that is a good one. Yeah, I, I, I saw that. I was looking at, there was a bogus Facebook site that my daughter showed me uh, where somebody was pretending to be me. Um, oh, that's so terrifying, things like that. You just go, what, why are you doing this? How is that helpful to anyone or anything? Well, I, I, it's a bit more terrifying for me because I think, am I me? <laughs> Did I do this? And, but no, we got in touch. It wasn't me. It was all right. You know, <laughs> it was somebody else. But um, the uh, they'd put at the bottom where it had got likes and dislikes, and they'd got this thing about dislikes, bloody kids. And I thought, well, where, where's that come from? And and then I remembered that, and apparently this is on the internet that this is a, a rumor that I I hate kids. And I was trying to think where that had come from, and I remembered I'd done this one interview. And it was over the phone. And at the end of it, they said, Mr. Moore, have you got any advice to pass on to our readers? And, like, no, was was the short answer. But you can't really say that. So I got a box of swan matches by the phone. And I just sort of picked it up. And I was saying, yes, I said, the best pieces of advice that I've ever heard are keep in a dry place. Keep away from children. Right. And strike gently away from the body. And they said, well, thank you, Mr Moore. So they must think that I'm some sort of Tai Chi expert who hates children and has got, like, hydrophobia or something like that, you know. Um, it's a shame to disabuse them, really. I mean, actually, that's a much more interesting persona than... The one I've actually got. No, but when you actually say that, just talking about those matches, see, taken out of context, it does suddenly you realise how people can take any kind of book or poem or film and they can read an enormous amount into a simple line. Yeah. I mean, you have you got any myths about you on the? Uh... Um, there's a lot of things that I, I didn't really anticipate when I first started doing stand up. The the I, the fact that. What happens is someone who hasn't seen you will 
need to summarise what you do for some reason. Mm. So then they'll read a thing probably written by someone else who hasn't seen you or who's not seen you do what you would say is representative of you. And then the summary of you will become one or two words, which then other people who haven't seen you but want a shortcut to describing you or pretending whether or not they like you will use. And then you are that thing. And then people will confront you with that as if that is who you are. So they'll be like, you don't do jokes, do you? And I'll be like, don't I? I thought that was all I tried to do. Or they'll be like, you're nice. And I'll be like, I, I just try and do the right thing. And um, I brought something. you do whimsy, don't you? Well, that's the most ridiculous thing. Now this, anyway, but it's also small fry, really. But No, but that is, to me, that's an interesting thing. That I, I don't know what your definition of, of, Alan, what would you define whimsy as? Whimsy, well... I suppose it's anything which it's a difficult word to just actually define, isn't it? Um, I suppose it's anything which is speculative and light-hearted, something like that. Which is quite a lot of stand-up, really. Quite a lot of stand-up is, yes, this, but what if this, you know? But I don't even think. You see, I think it's it's more like it's 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 about a kind of nothingness. Mm. It's it's about it. It has it has no weight to it. It has no point to it. I, no, I think you're probably, you're probably like on a right. whim. I mean, I was I was thinking when you you got me in here today, and I was fearing. Don't make it sound quite so much like a kidnap situation. <laughs> well, you were talking about no, was it you, you talking about getting me into a pincer situation with the seating <laughs> arrangements? I mean, it's, it's, in, it's in your language. You know, you can understand why I'm feeling a bit nervous. But no, I was mainly concerned that you might be trying to sort of shoehorn me into a Carl Pilkington role on this this podcast because sort of uh, and that you'd kind of say well what do you think Alan and then I'd have to say something like well do you think right that like a crocodile could have evolved from a stapler and then we'd be like ah crocodile stapler ah you thick man ah." that's it then you imply that I'm mentally deficient and it sort of carries on (laughs) like that and everybody's happy if anyone here is uh, I am fully aware of my position in this podcast (laughs) Um, well you're you're actually in the pincer movement I am I'm caught in your own pincer voluntarily went into the pincer movement Mm -hmm. like the terrifying victim you are but um, I brought this to sort of symbolise that, but my mum has given me, as a present, my mum's very sweet, but she often gives me presents that are entirely useless, and it drives me mad, because I like functional things, and I, I seem to have got a rep amongst, not amongst many people, because who am I? Nobody, but like, there's a few people who seem to think that, like, they'll be like, knitting, you like, you like to knit yourself a picture of a kitten, and you, you knit it, and it makes well, me sad. Well, I know, you knit images of Eugene Debs. <laughs> I do. Well, no, well, I draw images of Eugene Debs. It's very different. But I, um, the thing is, I like things that are functional. And one of the reasons that I liked making things and, like, crafting and stuff is because of how easy it is to make ex- things exactly uh, as you would like to suit you. And it's about kind of creating a life for yourself that's independent and as you like and it's not about being like um i needed a picture of a friend you know it drives me mad and then my mum gave me a plate of knitted cakes this is a knitted battenberg and i just thought i couldn't like this like it's very sweet of her and i like the gesture of it but this could not be less what I like because it's pointless. Is it because of the cakes see... that it is? Is it because it's a Battenberg? If it had been a different cake, oh no, would you be a less selection of cakes. Well, that in itself is a torture to me because of my un- unlucky wit intolerance. But um, the it's just the fact that they're so pointless, and I think 
you could have knitted useful things. You could have, especially recently when I've thought, I've kind of felt guilty for being a comedian because I feel like even at its best, it's not doing anything that's good enough, right? And so I just look at these and I think, you could be studying to become a nurse and you are knitting a Battenberg, whoever you are. Well, hang on, <laughs> didn't, didn't William Morris say, wasn't it? And I think later purloined by Oscar Wilde that have nothing in your house apart from that that is beautiful and that that is useful. Are you saying that that knitted Battenberg is neither beautiful nor useful? I'm saying it's very nice and I appreciate the gift, but it is absolutely useless. It definitely doesn't... Yeah, he doesn't say have things in your house that are nice and may have some practicality when mopping up a mess. He doesn't That's, say, fill and, your house with useless things. And, and I, I mean, it, it, does it also sort of say that your own mother doesn't know you, Josie? She doesn't know your revulsion. Let's face it. I mean, we can see it written all over your face. At this fairly harmless-looking sort of knitted Battenberg. All the, although I can see the conflict there because, like... A knitted Battenberg, I mean, a normal knitted thing, you could sort of like, hold it to your face and sort of comfort yourself. Warm yourself. Yeah. Um, but you'd never hold a piece of Battenberg to your face because they're sticky mm. and it would feel horrible. Likewise, you'd never eat a knitted item. So it doesn't really <laughs> work whichever way, you know, you, you come at it. But it is, I mean, it's nice to look at. But it's lovely. What? What you are, you, you do, do know you're going to lose. We're going to lose our core group of listeners now. Our demographic is specifically confectionery and other sweet thing based knitters. <laughs> no, but and I that's like that knitting. <laughs> and, but I think I tell you what it is. I think things uh, people who knit don't do it just to waste everyone's time. And Mac, what do you think? They do it because it's a really great way of making things for yourself and for your friends that feel personal to you and, and are useful and last a long time and you know you can make in a good way and you know you can make without any kind of dishonourable sweatshoppery or anything like that. It's, I think people that do crafts do it, or, or to begin with did it to sort of empower themselves Oh yeah, I mean like my, my daughter she's got uh, an actual spinning wheel so that she can actually make her own yarn Mm. And she's kind of big into the the um, the post civilization. Oh God, those stuff. people terrify me. Uh, well, no, but she was saying, you know, like it might look a bit stupid having this wooden spinning wheel in the corner, but after the apocalypse, when there's no more jumpers, suddenly everyone's going to want to be her friend. That's how I feel about the fact that I always wear sensible shoes. I feel like, well, you might be wearing shoes that you think are beautiful, but when, as and when the apocalypse comes, I will run and jump over a wall. Yeah, when a giant creature comes out of the Thames yeah. with all fangs and that... Like in the host. I will be some distance away. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, that, that is that that whole kind of uh, post... Because you, you, you made your daughter sound there, like, both benevolent and at the same time like a kind of Rumpelstiltskin figure. <laughs> because no, it, no. she seemed to gloat over the yarn there. That's the bit I didn't like. Ha, 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 the apocalypse <laughs> has come. Well, don't even touch my jumpers. But she wanted what? friends. She wasn't like, everyone here would be giving me all their sheep. She'd be like, I'll have a lot of friends. That's nice. That was how she was phrasing it. That was how she was phrasing it, although she may have been kind of trying to get across the message. But, yeah, you better start treating her nicely before the apocalypse if you want to ensure your jumper supply. That's a good piece of advice. Be kinder to people before the apocalypse. Because you never know when you might need a jumper. 
and I wanted to talk a bit about something. This is a bit of a kind of Dodgem Logic group now, because uh, Dodgem Logic is uh, the magazine that is now in its. Uh, by the time this goes out, fourth issue, fourth issue. is going to be out. And um, I mean, there is in a lot of your work. There's quite a kind of political side, and Dodgem Logic has its own kind of fanzine agenda, doesn't it? Well, it's uh, it just started a year ago, just because it's. I mean, it's an underground magazine, and I just. About a year ago, I just thought I'd really like to see an underground magazine again. I used to enjoy the space that they used to have in culture, where, I mean, sometimes they'd say things that were offensive or poorly thought, thought through, but the general principle of just having this big mashup of all sorts of different ideas and concepts in one big free-for-all, that's something that I think is really missing. So we, we decided to sort of put Dodge and Logic together on a whim uh, round about last October and uh, it's, we're, we're having a lot of fun I mean the distribution could probably be better but um, we're really proud of it it's kind of, it's beautiful, it's funny, there's a lot of political stuff in there there's stuff that's, there's stuff that's local and I think that this is kind of important. Well, it's like the, the, I mean, the the thing, the the issue three had uh, a, a drawing that you'd done of a kind of uh, fairground of, of training. And then before that, it was a a, a photo, very nice, of, of a burlesque performer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then this one, I mean, just it is the fact that you you've got a picture of two men kissing on the front cover. And now that probably, even though twenty years ago, that would have just been ours. Oh, they've got one of those pictures on the front cover or painting like that suddenly now it appears to be quite a a big gesture quite a it doesn't it shouldn't do no that's because i remember arena do you remember the men's magazine there's one called arena uh-huh. when men's magazines used to have on the they, they used to actually be about things like i'm talking about those men's magazines that came out in the 80s some of them were just boring kind of style things but there was one called arena and they had one with jfk on the cover they had one with elvis on the cover and they had one with this just this nude man in a kind of reasonably Greek pose and um, I remember at the time we were going oh this is just an amazing thing that you've done and it's, I remember thinking it's just a nude man it didn't yeah. seem like very much and then of course within two years suddenly the magazine reverted to lots of uh, kind of bosomy women and mm-hmm. that's where they've all remained now the kind of the loaded etc well I mean like with this it was um, we just asked John Coulthard uh, we, thought, we thought it's it's summer let's make this the psychedelic issue so because John Coulthard's about the most psychedelic guy we know, we asked him to do the cover. And um, it's just turned out with these two butterfly-winged guys kissing on the front. So it's kind of gayadelic. And so we, we thought we'd better have some kind of gay content in there. We've got, um, I think, Britain's only openly gay teacher um, doing who is a friend of ours from Northampton who since moved away but she's just talking about what it was like coming out to sort of tough inner urban school kids and uh, all that stuff so it's great it's just an arena where we can have anything we want running riot really you know we've got uh, some of the Viz cartoonists uh, Barney Farmer and uh, Lee Healy the ones who do the drunken bakers right which is existential horror uh, really funny but they've got a couple of strips in there and um, it's starting to gather a bit of colourful momentum you know and then of course there's your bits and sort of uh, 
your bits when you get them in, Josie. <laughs> and also, you did have the best uh, supplement space adventure uh, involving uh, a, a penis. Uh, I'm sorry, we, Front Magazine had a really good one. No, not as good. No, <laughs> no one. I hate giving a spoiler at the end, but the fact that the noble, brave uh, space uh, adventurer penis, uh, by ejaculating into his helmet, becomes blind. Yeah, uh, I mean, so a lot of It's a very people, tragic end to a, a penis in a space suit. And possibly to a, a previously respected writing career, I don't know. <laughs> you know it, it's, uh, I think a lot of people, some people seem to like it. Robin, you've, you've got a very robust sense of humour. You seem to have really liked um, Astro Dick. But, you know, Stuart, on the other hand, I kind of, I get a feeling, just the look in his eyes, he looks like I've let him down. You know, I sort of... I mean, he's been very fulsome in his praises, but on the Astro Dick point, I, I think that he'd expected better of me. I think the problem is that Stuart Lee, uh, his own uh, ejaculatory uh, adventure novel, uh, is now pretty much in the bin. That's why he, he <laughs> pretends... Uh, that was it. There was, there was a great story. Weirdly enough, just in the pub beforehand, we bumped into Barry Cryer, who we did one of these uh, ages ago, uh, with, and one of my favourite things he ever said was, Barry Cryer was at a party with Stuart Lee, and uh, Stuart came and he went, oh, hi, uh, Barry. And Barry just kind of didn't really say anything to him. And... Uh, then she was going, oh, I said something to Barry or whatever. And then and every time that Stuart looked around, Barry just kind of gave him a quick look and then turned away crossly. And uh, eventually Stuart went over and, and he went, have I done something, Barry? And he went, I think you know what you've done. He goes, well, what do you mean? He goes, well, you, you stole my vomiting into the gaping anus of Christ routine. <laughs> <laughs> do, do you think, I mean, that thing where because you have been elevated... You know, there is a thing that every, you know, your work is analysed and you have, you know, Watchmen is seen as such an important work and from hell, that are the people who get a little bit cross. I mean, something like Lost Girls. What was the general reaction to that, which Lost Girls, for the, I imagine everyone listening probably knows, uh, but you basically, you, you took, uh, it was it was Wendy and Dorothy and, and Alice, uh, and they, you kind of had them in their, their sexual adventures when, they, when they're growing up. Do, do some people go, well, I thought he was, you know, I'm not really sure about We'd this. We'd expected so much more of you, Alan. Yeah, mm. No, I don't I don't think so. I think that, I mean, we took all those years, me and Melinda doing Lost Girls, to kind of make it bulletproof in the sense that if you make it beautiful enough and intelligent enough, then that's going to be pretty awesome. Yeah, and, and good to read as a woman, like, well, that was what we we hoped for, you know, that it sort of that it would work. I mean, it had got. I mean, although I was writing it, I mean, sort of me and Melinda were sort of talking the whole thing through, and it wasn't. It was never going to be difficult to write a pornography that would appeal to men, you know. But we didn't want to just do that. We wanted something that could appeal to to women, and which would also address a lot of the quite genuinely sound critiques of pornography that had been made by some of the feminist critics we wanted to sort of try and get around that you know but no I think I've got a pretty resilient audience Robin you know they in fact with Lost Girls it, it was kind of delightful and extraordinary I was down in a, a cafe Nero a few months ago and this young woman that I know from um, from Lush, where I do get 
an awful lot of scented bath bombs and things like that. It is a voice of mine, you know. Have you had the one that's the honey shower gel? It's fantastic. I used that. It's honey and jasmine. I'm big on the Sorry. Fa- I'm big on the fairy jasmine bath bombs, but they kind of leave you with kind of blue glitter. Yes, all over the bath, all, all over, over your, your hair. house, all <laughs> over your pets, everything, and it's a, it's a kind of 1970s experience. Can I say I really like the fact that now people listening are going to be imagining you covered in glitter, in glitter, like out of the bath, like oh that was refreshing. And that, that's an accurate picture. I don't <laughs> mind people sort of seeing me like that. That is know. a better myth than you hating children. It's not even a myth, but you... That's why it's a better, yeah. yeah. It's a worse myth. It's, <laughs> yeah, as myths true. go, it's an absolute disaster absolutely... due to its factual nature. But it'd be good because then, you know, the uh, the story of you spending a good hour a day having to scrub your bath of glitter, that's more Yeah, I don't do that. I just let it build up, Josie. It's just like crusted with glitter and hair. Right. You know what I always use? I always use a knitted Battenberg just to get some of the... Uh, <laughs> it would be very good. There. Hang on. Scourer. This is all coming together well, isn't it? I feel bad because I really appreciate my mum giving me anything, you know. Um, but... That would be a good scourer. I mean, it's only for plates or something. Maybe for... But then it would... I don't know. I think but it's... But it would the, go a bit nappy, wouldn't it? Mm. And a bit weird. I think it's not every now and again it's nice I remember when I was about 21 years old getting something from my mum which was just so she knew I was into comedy she knew I loved comedy so she got me a, a, a knitted cream jumper with Charlie Chaplin's face knitted wow. into it slightly too small as well so it could you know show off all the uh, the malformations the goods so, yeah all, all my <laughs> malformation of body and, uh, and I never knew what to do because I thought I think I've still got it somewhere because I thought I'll have I it. know why she did it I'll have it Okay. I will have that. I'll, I'll find Sounds out where brilliant. it is. But it was it was not I could never wear a a cream knitted jumper with the face of Charlie Chaplin knitted into it. But I also knew exactly why is that that you like comedy. Yeah. Here's here's this we found this old Phil Cool DVD. Yeah. You'll enjoy that. <laughs> you must get some weird gifts every now and again, don't you? There's um well, again, I, I hate to disappoint, but sort of people generally they I am very difficult to buy for. Or so I'm told because I've got most of it. But, you know, like, uh, and I don't get people saying, oh, you like reading, you know, uh, here's a phone directory. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> See, but, if, I, if I had to buy you a present, I think I would buy you something really technical to do with drawing that you probably would need at some stage. That's what I go for, like a set square. Actually, that I, I keep losing set squares. Yes, so I'm a that, prophet. Yeah, <laughs> she is. Did you dream that? Jackie? Did you, I... you dream that you were sitting here and I revealed that I would like a set square? But um, <laughs> no, I've, 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 that's, I've been having a lot of fun with uh, with drawing lately. I mean, it's uh, because I hadn't done it for years, but it's kind of not. Even if you didn't think you were very good, it's surprising. You have a big layoff and you're almost adequate you know when you uh, pick up the the pencil again so was but, that the only reason you gave up drawing the, the the strips as well because i was rubbish yeah i mean i'd got i'd got delusions of adequacy as an artist you know but at the beginning that's what i really wanted to be and so i did make a kind of living i was earning about 47 pounds a week by doing a strip for sounds and a strip for the local paper and I realised that I was never going to earn any more than £47 a week uh, from drawing because most of the other artists in the business, they were really proficient and really fast. 
they could do a polished page of artwork a day and it took me weeks just mm. doing all the little dots and stippling and stuff like that you know so uh, I just figured that I was probably going to make more out of being a writer because I'd I'd not learned to draw any better during all those years doing comic strips but I had learned to actually tell a story and write better and uh, yeah that, that seemed to be the way to go you know See, I love those things. The thing of, of uh, the combination of writing and comic strips is Robert Crumb's older brother, who now um, sadly dead, who obviously had many, many demons. Charles, and yeah. and um, the, in, in the film about his life where he shows why he had to stop doing cartoons because his speech bubbles, the words became so important. I don't know if you've seen these, Josie. And that, that by the end of it, you just have this very tiny crushed image of whoever is meant to be the mouthpiece of this dialogue which in one way I, I kind of find that really charming and intriguing the idea that you can't even there's so much speech in a frame that you can't see what's behind it you can just have a hint well, of who is speaking in in like mainstream comics that is a good sign that the artist and writer don't like each other anymore I can remember sort of one of the, the superhero books from Marvel in the 70s where there were rumours that the artist and writer both thought that they were the ones who were making the book important and some sort of like warfare had broken out between them. And I can remember that this meant that the, the writer would try to cover up as much of the artwork with his balloons as possible <coughs> and the, the artist would presumably retaliate by drawing stuff that was sort of uh, not what the writer had asked for and it's a wonder that any of these comics ever came out really you know but uh, yeah I mean you I mean in my own writing if you look at my notebooks which there's no reason for you to do but but there would when I've written the dialogue or the captions for a particular panel there's little numbers written next to them because I've counted up all the words in that panel and I never have more if there's six panels on a page I never have more than 35 words in a panel so that kind of means 210 words a page break it up how you like you know but that's that seems to be just about enough so that you'll still be able to see plenty of the picture and you'll have a few words to convey what you wanted to convey but with uh, Josie, sorry, you've, I've left you out there. Say, so I suddenly know down. that we haven't got very much time left. There was loads of things that I wanted to ask you, which was, for instance, the the matching up of uh, the artist with what you're writing. I mean, on, on V for Vendetta, is that right? That was kind of uh, almost an accident. What happened there? That uh, it's David Lloyd, isn't it? Mm -hmm. that, that he was meant to be writing a strip, and then he couldn't really get the idea. Is that right? Well, or? no. What it was was that uh, I was meant to be writing it. He was meant to be drawing it. But um, we'd been asked to do something that was a 1930s noir adventure strip because the editor wasn't very imaginative and because that was the last strip that David had done. And that and was for Warrior, wasn't this it? This was for Warrior. Yeah. And uh, so they asked me to write something like that and I just kind of thought, well, well, the artist had said that if he had to draw another 1920s Duesenberg or something like that, then he'd just kill himself. So I figured that part of the, the charm of a 1930s noir story is that the 1930s are 
very similar to our own times, but just far enough away to be exotic and interesting. So I thought, well, you could do the same thing by just projecting it into the future, into the, the far distant future of 1997, when I predicted that we'd have a fascist government in control who would have put... Now, this is where we're talking about prophecy. <laughs> this is the callback. Here, you see, and it's like I said that in 1997 there'd be a fascist government in control who would have put security monitor cameras on every street corner mm. and it was actually in 1997 that uh, the Blair government got in and began implementing the security cameras starting with Kings Lynn I think and then rolling them out I'd, I'd start with bloody Kings Lynn. I wouldn't trust them as far as I'd throw them. I was just going to mention the reason, just because I was reading Hypatia on the way in, and when you were talking about disappointment of the Labour government in 1925, again we hear that w woman, like the Labour Party when in office, has done nothing with the opportunities given her by the vote. So what um, is good to know is people have been, di apart from possibly the late 40s, oh, we've really gone over and now we've all really woken up and I don't really want to stop now, but I can see Adrian, who produces it, is saying we've got one minute left and that was actually, we haven't, we've got about minus five minutes left and I've made Alan bring... Yeah, you can, I, but Alan, then we've got to quickly find out what you're going to show and tell. We're only going to be able to do it for one minute. Josie. Mrs Bertrand Russell only had to hang out for another four years because then Jenny Lee came into office in 1929, age 24, before she was legally entitled to vote and she was a five run and she was amazing and then she set up the Open University. Well, we should be talking about Mrs. Bertram Russell and her feminism in a later podcast. Hooray! Uh, and, oh, and while Alan's... Yeah, go on. All I've got, my, my little thing for show and tell, was this old fanzine from 1937 that's got this uh, thing in called Cats and Dogs by Lewis Theobald Jr. that has got corrections actually in the author's own hand. And... Lewis Theobald Jr. was actually H.P. Lovecraft, who was a strange racist anti-Semite, at least in his earlier life, but who wrote a lot of very frightening stories. So, uh, yes, you can actually touch the word Negroes written in, in pencil, um, possibly by the hand of H.P. Lovecraft. Joe, see so you touch it, see how it works. So it I'm racist now. Yeah, you're, you're a bit racist. <laughs> oh, it's fantastic. Yeah. See, that's when... H.P. Lovecraft. There, we we never got on to talking about films because I was I asked some people to, to, if they had any questions for you. We're not going to talk about the films because we know about it. But someone wants to know if there's any comic book films, not your own, that you've seen and actually thought that's a pretty good comic book film. I haven't seen any of the. The last comic book I saw was comic book film I saw was probably, um, Doc Savage with oh. Ron Eloy, mm. uh, special effects by George Powell. I was very impressed with that. That was the early 70s, but I've been a bit out of the loop since then. Have so you seen Doc Savage? No, I haven't. It's brilliant because it was Doc Savage, Man of Bronze, yeah. Ron Eloy, who played Tarzan in the TV series, and at the end it has one of those great things go, the end of Doc Savage, Man of Bronze, but Doc Savage will return in, whatever <laughs> it is. And then you go... No, he won't. No, he won't. It didn't no. do very well in the cinema at all. I think Never Biggles does the again. same thing. They did in 1987. They did, they did a modern. It was like Biggles, but also someone modern, I saw so that. that you wouldn't feel alienated yeah. with a great disco song. But I can't sing because we're not allowed to sing songs. But uh, <laughs> Peter Cushing Biggles. lived in a yeah. Biggles, <laughs> he's in the air. Biggles, 
It's a very <laughs> short song. Uh, there's loads we didn't get covered. There was we only just really got started. Um, thank you very much, Josie Long. It's a great I'll see honor. you at the next one. My Alan pleasure. My I'll pleasure. see you. We're going to be talking about. We're talking about physics next time, aren't we? Oh yeah. yeah. And space. See, I wanted to talk about all those things that when you were. Uh, You've been listening to Josie Long and Robinitz's Utter Shambles, brought to you by Comedy Central. This podcast was produced by Adrian McKinder and edited by Michael Pell. For more comedy podcasts and other things as well, visit comedycentral.co.uk.